that we could demonstrate that survival from serious injury in our field hospital in the desert was better than a teaching hospital at home. And this alerted the Healthcare Commission to identify that our operational care was exemplary. And they said that there was much that our National Health Service could learn from the military. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. Major General Tim Hodgetts is the Surgeon General of the United Kingdom Defense Medical Services. General Hodgetts is an expert in emergency and disaster medicine and is the most senior uniformed medical officer within the UK Armed Forces. In this episode, General Hodgetts explains how he managed a contemporary revolution in combat casualty care and built and led the specialty of military emergency medicine in the UK. He provides several leadership principles that have helped him in his career and provides specific examples of overcoming leadership challenges. General Hodges talks about the similarities and differences in the military health systems in the United States and the UK, and what they can learn from each other, and discusses the many benefits of continuing partnership. You can find out more about Major General Hodges and previous guests on our website, wardoxpodcast.com. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, retired Army Major General Jeff Clark, a family medicine physician. Today, we're privileged to welcome the UK Surgeon General, Major General Tim Hodgetts. Sir, thanks for joining us today. It's a great pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. You were commissioned in 1983 and then trained at Westminster Medical School. Could you please tell us a little bit about what motivated you to seek a career in military medicine? I think this is the fundamental question that you would be asked to get into medical school. Why do you want to be a doctor? But I think when asked today, my answer would be a little different. I was very academic at school and I did well in exams and I liked the sciences. I wanted to do something meaningful to have a profession that was respected and medicine was a logical choice. But at that stage, I think I was also full of self-doubt. What if I don't get into medical school? And serendipitously, there was a very insightful visiting military careers officer who showed me what the army could offer. And if I didn't get into medical school, then I would likely have joined the Royal Artillery, the Gunners, and perhaps what a a different career that would have been. But he seeded the idea of being a doctor in the army. So that's the poster I made for myself in my last year at school. And I stuck it above my bed, doctor in the army. So once you finished your training, you decided to specialize in emergency medicine and specifically disaster medicine. What brought that about? Well, we're all prisoners of our experience and it's events that led me to a career in emergency and disaster medicine. When I joined the army, there was no specialty of emergency medicine. So in the late 1980s, I was a senior house officer, the equivalent of a junior resident uh, in general internal medicine. And I was in the British military hospital in Hanover, West Germany, before the Berlin Wall came down. And at that time, the Irish Republican Army, the IRA, was very active in Germany. There were shootings of soldiers at the Channel Port when they were going on leave. There were drive-by shootings outside the military hospitals. And there were multiple car bombings. And there were even two car bombs 
in the street where I lived. And we had had to evacuate our military hospital twice because of coded bomb warnings. So I was increasingly interested in pre-hospital care and I prepared for a new exam, the Diploma in Immediate Medical Care with the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh. And I did actually get the gold medal for that exam in its first year. But I then turned my revision notes into my first book, which I published in 1990. And it included exercises in multiple casualty management. And no one else seemed to be thinking in this way. And no one else seemed to be offering any preparation like this. And all this conditioning was to prove extremely salient because the following year, on the 2nd of November 1991, I was in the military hospital in Belfast as the internal medicine senior resident when the hospital was blown up by the IRA. And I was actually still a relatively junior officer. I was an army captain. But because of my accelerated clinical rank and my pre-hospital experience, I became the incident commander. And the hospital was on fire and partially destroyed. We had injured and dead colleagues to rescue from the rubble. And of course, existing patients in the hospital to evacuate to safety. And I reflected deeply on that incident. I wrote about it in the journal Injury. And within a year, I had created a course with civilian colleagues that remains today as an international civilian and NATO standard for disaster medicine. But in 1991, there was still no emergency medicine in the army and I was ready to leave. But there was one general who had vision, a guy called Major General Jack Cool. So I became one of the first two to be trained in emergency medicine and then to establish and grow the military specialty. Sir, thank you for that. And, and sort of related to what you just shared, could you share one of your most memorable clinical cases that you were personally involved in? I think three cases that sort of flood into my mind, but they're all linked because they were all difficult resuscitations, what we call touch and go cases in the UK and what you might refer to as swirling the drain cases. But as survivors, they've all been recognized for achieving something astonishing. Uh, one was a gunshot wound to the head who has survived to be awarded the Victoria Cross for his action to save others. And this is our highest gallantry award, and it's comparable to the Medal of Honor. The second case survived an IED to become a celebrated artist and writer and paradoxically describes the post-traumatic growth that he's experienced after losing both of his legs in the blast. But it's the third case which is the most profound because it was very early in my career and it deeply influenced my career choices subsequently. It was just two weeks after I qualified in 1986 and I'd stopped on a country road late at night with my family at a road accident and there was no other traffic and no light other than the moon. And it was before the days of a mobile phone. There were four teenage casualties and two of them, the girls in the car, were clearly dead. And my father took the car to go and find a phone to call an ambulance while I stayed with one of my sisters at the scene. And I found that one of the survivors had lost his arm above the elbow. And even in the light of the moon, he was very pale and he was bleeding out. So I improvised a tourniquet using the casualties belt. Two years later, he went on to win his first gold medal at the Seoul Paralympic Games. And the personal lesson was that I had learned very early in my career 
that tourniquets do save lives and even improvised tourniquets. And that experience, I think, also seeded a passion for a career improving pre-hospital care outcomes. And that remained unfulfilled until I had found that path to train in emergency medicine. Well, that's a great story. And over your career, you've been part of and led a contemporary revolution in combat casualty care. Can you describe some of the major concepts that have led to innovation in major trauma governance? This could be a very long answer because it's an important part of my career story. And for those who are truly interested in the story of the UK's revolution in combat casualty care, I'd refer them to a thesis that I published in 2012, which is available online through the City University of London. But if I focus on the key component of effective major trauma governance, I would say it's been all about the data. The higher the quality of the data and the more comprehensive across the trauma system from point of wounding to definitive care, then the greater opportunity to identify trends and drive continuous clinical quality improvement. I first established a trauma registry in Frimley Park Hospital in 1997, which was a combined civilian and military hospital. And here I mirrored the regional trauma system that I'd observed when I was a trauma fellow in Sydney, Australia, from 1994 to 1995. And when I set up this trauma registry, there was no other hospital in UK doing the analysis of key clinical performance indicators and outcomes to this degree. And the hospital was recognised nationally as a beacon project in England, and we showed year-on-year improvements in outcomes. And I actually invited an experienced trauma nurse coordinator from Texas to visit us and help identify how we could continue to improve. So in 1999, I took that team from the mixed military civilian hospital in Frimley Park as part of the British Field Hospital that went to Kosovo in the NATO operation immediately after the 76-day air bombardment had ceased. And this was also the first ever UK deployment of military emergency medicine. And before 1999, we'd never collected the data that would allow us to benchmark against other major trauma systems, whether they were civilian or military. And our assumption was the outcomes must be below those that were achievable in a civilian hospital. How could you possibly get the same or better outcomes in a tent? But what we proved instead was that the outcomes were the same. So from the start of the Afghanistan campaign a few years later in 2002 and the Iraq campaign in 2003, we had a network of trauma nurse coordinators in every field hospital and hospital ship to collect the data. But that in itself wasn't enough to drive clinical quality improvement. We needed to change behaviours while clinicians were still deployed, not with a report that was six months old or a year old. We needed to change behaviours in near real time. And I'd heard that US colleagues had established a clinical case conference So I established our own. And every week from early 2004 and still running today, we've had a telephone conference of all the deployed Roll 2 and Roll 3 medical treatment facilities reaching back to our receiving hospital in Birmingham. And around the same time in 2004, I established the process where an acute clinician from my academic department would attend every post-mortem. That's what we refer to as an autopsy of our combat deaths. 
And with our coroner inquests taking a year or more to report, we couldn't tolerate that delay to act on lessons. So we used this real-time opportunity to refine training and clinical procedures on a week-by-week basis and to identify how vehicle and personal protection could be improved. And it was a genuine collaboration between military medicine and defence science. And together with new clinical concepts, training, guidelines, equipment, organisation, I think we were able to achieve that genuine revolution. And one where not only the processes, but the outcomes were proved to have changed. And they changed to a degree that we could demonstrate that survival from serious injury in our field hospital in the desert was better than a teaching hospital at home. And this alerted the Healthcare Commission, which is now known as the Care Quality Commission, to identify that our operational care was exemplary. And they'd never before used that descriptor for any ambulance service or any acute hospital. And they said that there was much that our National Health Service could learn from the military. And indeed, they did learn because the transfer of this experience underpinned the new network of major trauma centres that were established across the country from 2012. Now, at the same time, the United States military medicine was putting together their ideas for a trauma registry that went into the theater. How much did the UK trauma registry and the US work together to come up with concepts and lessons learned in real time to change care on the battlefield? I'd say quite a considerable lot. And I got to know Mary Ann Spot well quite early on as we developed our trauma registry. And indeed, in the deployment that I had in Afghanistan in 2009, which was a British framework nation, but with American clinicians working in that, we had both UK and American trauma nurse coordinators working side by side. And we've continued, I think, to learn from each other extremely well. I've heard you quote George Bernard Shaw, progress is only made by unreasonable people. And I think that's related. I think you want to can tie that into some of the remarks you just made. What, what, is that, what does George Bernard Shaw quote mean to you? Okay, well, I think it's a great quote, although I would take it with a, a little bit of a pinch of salt. If you're reasonable, you will compromise or you'll even acquiesce. And when you compromise too much, then the disruptive change that's needed may not be achieved. And sometimes you have to dig your heels in and not compromise, but fight for what you know is right. And a good example of that is what I'd refer to as the tourniquet wars that took place in the pages of our academic medical literature around 2003 and 2004. And both the US and the UK were looking at commercial solutions to individual issue tourniquets based on the historical data that lives could be saved from catastrophic limb bleeding in in war. And importantly, as I've indicated, we were sharing notes. And I was championing the case to introduce a windlass tourniquet for every soldier in the UK. But our own military orthopaedic surgeons actively opposed this, citing likely adverse effects. And of course, this completely missed the point that a tourniquet applied for the right reasons, which is catastrophic limb bleeding that cannot be controlled by any other means, could only ever do good because the alternative is to watch the patient die. And I think history has proven that being unreasonable in this situation was right. And rather frustratingly, over 10 years later, 
I've rehearsed the same arguments for the use of tourniquets by civilian emergency services. And almost 20 years after we've provided soldiers with this benefit, have we begun to provide our public with stop the bleed kits that include tourniquets. And the kits in UK include a low-cost tourniquet that I designed myself with the patent and all proceeds transferred to a not-for-profit organisation. And being determined, having an unshakable mindset, I think has been essential. And I can trace it back to that roadside in 1986 and the improvised tourniquet with a belt and the fact that I know that tourniquets do save lives. You mentioned that the specialty of emergency medicine didn't even exist in the UK Army medical system. What were some of the challenges that you encountered in leading that specialty to be developed? Yeah, so I think the first challenge was that we were the new kid on the block and the culture of the field hospital had to change. Shortly after I became a consultant in emergency medicine in 1995, an attending emergency physician, I was told by the then Director General of the Army Medical Services that I had no war role. We were a Cinderella specialty. And what it took for the organisational penny to drop was that deployment to Kosovo, where our value in coordinating the reception of all casualties and leading the multidisciplinary team in a trauma resuscitation, I think was plain to see for everybody in the field hospital. And after that, we transformed very rapidly to be regarded as a core hospital specialty and the lead specialty for developing pre-hospital immediate care. But Kosovo wasn't all plain sailing. We deployed without any coherent emergency department equipment, but rather had to adapt a combination of primary care, anaesthetic and ward equipment modules. But this did change from later in 1999 when I was given the authority to design a complete equipment and drug scale for a deployable ED and to revise all of the pre-hospital modules so that they were appropriately integrated and represented successively smaller packages of coherent equipment as you got closer and closer to the point of wounding. And I think another big challenge early on was that military emergency medicine was subordinated under military orthopaedic surgery, which was somewhat of an anachronism relating to the origin of many of the 1970s and 1980s generation of emergency physicians in the UK that they'd arisen from the specialty of orthopaedic surgery. But we all know that there's as much, if not more, acute internal medicine as there is serious trauma in an emergency department. So I made a point of asking my boss at the time, an orthopaedic surgeon, about challenging issues around the treatment of internal medicine cases. And after not too long, he recommended that EM should be its own specialty with its own defence consultant advisor or DCA. And I was that first DCA and I was also the first professor leading the specialty from infancy to maturity over 11 years and founding the academic department of military emergency medicine. And today, military emergency medicine is one of our biggest deployable specialties. It has one of the most productive academic departments, and its use ensures that it has the energy and vibrancy for a strong future. Changing tack just a, a little bit into more related to leadership, and you've served in many different leadership positions in your career. And Sir, what is a leadership principle that you know now that you wish you learned earlier in your career? 
So I'm actually a, a great fan of General Colin Powell's leadership principles, uh, and in particular his 40-70 principle, and, and that is if you haven't got at least 40% of the information, then you probably can't make a safe decision. But if you wait until you've got more than 70% of the information, then you might have waited too long and the enemy has already acted. And in emergency medicine, I would say that the greatest enemy is time. And you must be prepared to start treating the patient, then adjust as more information becomes available. And I think on reflection, I probably have followed this principle throughout my career, and I have been comfortable with uncertainty. But it's reassuring that the principle has been codified by such a senior soldier and statesman. And I think it's very similar to the saying attributed to Nicholas Colney, who was the physician to King Henry V in the 15th century. And he said, it is the mark of a mature mind to bear uncertainty with equanimity. And being supported to take reasonable risk in uncertainty is, I know, hugely empowering. Can you give us a specific example where you faced a significant leadership challenge and what you did to face it or handle it? I think what's been one of my greatest leadership challenges and in parallel, one of my greatest leadership rewards was being the medical director of a multinational field hospital in Afghanistan in 2009. And that was during a very high tempo period of serious casualties. And this hospital was half Danish, a quarter American, and a quarter British with a handful of Estonians. But it had Britain as the framework nation. And this raised two particular challenges, and they were language and cultural differences. And I did volunteer a year out for this deployment, specifically because uh, it was a predictable challenge. And my first mitigation was to learn Danish, not because the Danish staff didn't speak English, because they all did very well, but because I was worried if people were under stress, such as the stress that you get in a multiple casualty incident, that they might default to their own language. So my aim was to be able to run a trauma resuscitation in Danish. And what I found was that in learning the language, which I did one-to-one in the language school in Copenhagen, that you also learn the culture. And rather than being regarded as an imposed outsider, I was now one of the team. I was one of the in-group. And learning the language, I would say, was the best investment in pre-deployment training that I've ever made. But in parallel, I also studied international cultural theory which are the theories espoused by Professor Gert Hofsted from the Netherlands. And he identified a series of characteristics that vary in each nation, such as the willingness to take risk or the relative distance, vertical distance within each social hierarchy, which influence behaviours. And I found them to be startlingly accurate. And the differences resulted in both predicted and unpredicted frictions but they were all explicable by his cultural theories. And I would strongly commend visiting Hofstede's website and comparing the nations that you're about to work with in a multinational setting. It will actually provide you great insight. But of course, no single culture is right or wrong. We're just different, sometimes subtly, but sometimes actually quite dramatically. During the Deployed Medical Healthcare Delivery Conference, which you in your role as the UK surgeon hosted in London recently, 
there were many outstanding presentations, and among those was was one by uh, Brigadier General David Ward from Australia Reserve Component Surgeon, and he made a couple of, I thought, very interesting and provocative remarks, and I will appreciate your thoughts on these. The first is, we are the same by default. We are merely similar by exception. Thus, we should be separate only by necessity. You're, would you comment on that, please? Yeah. Well, first of all, I'd say I wholeheartedly agree. And within the NATO alliance, we recognize that we are stronger together and that whatever we do in the future, particularly at, if it's going to be at any scale or at any duration, then we will need to do that as a partnership. And multinationality buys out mutual risk. But I think to be successful in multinationality, we've obviously got to be interoperable. And to be interoperable, we need to be standardized as much as is practical in our tactics and our techniques, in our equipment, our drugs, our treatment guidelines. And closer to home, we must demand interoperability across the armed services of our own nations. And last time I checked, the human anatomy and physiology was the same, irrespective of which service you join. So the argument for differences in guidelines and equipment is pretty weak. Unless there are specific environmental considerations, such as altitude, depth, heat, or cold, or perhaps the unique challenges that might be faced by the special operations community. I completely agree. There's very little reason that we're not using the same systems, the same equipment, et cetera. Another statement that Brigadier General Ward made, which I found quite compelling, he said, there is no safe place on the battlefield, particularly the battlefield of the future. So therefore, there is no safe place for forward medics. Thus, medics will die in future conflicts. Your, your thoughts on that? So again, I have to agree, it's been a prominent lesson from the Russo-Ukraine war that the traditional protection of the Geneva Convention and the Red Cross emblem simply won't hold in future peer-on-peer -peer conflicts. And in Ukraine, every one and every thing has become a target. Now, I have written about this in the last year and published on the online Wavel Room think tank where I identified that the Red Cross has become a dread cross. And we will need to consider mobility, dispersion, camouflage, and hard cover as a means of future protection. But we must remember that mobility is likely to be inversely proportional to clinical sophistication. So you will trade mobility for outcomes. So as an emergency and disaster medicine specialist, and kind of on this topic of seeing horrific things and medics dying on the battlefield, we have seen a focus here in America and probably in the UK about resilience and, and burnout. What are some of the things that you do personally to cope with the stress of seeing some of these horrific things? And how do you mentally prepare for the future? I've absolutely seen some unimaginable things when I witnessed the impact of natural man-made disasters. And in particular, the human suffering and mangled humanity that accompanies war. And what sticks in my mind is reassembling a flatbed truck of body parts as a particular low. Of course, we all do need to find coping mechanisms, and this may be particularly challenging when you're the senior doctor and when everyone's looking to you for support and guidance. But training and experience as an emergency physician prepare you to an extent for what you see in conflict and perhaps for some of the difficult ethical challenges that you might face when you have limited resources. 
But I firmly believe that the place for those difficult ethical decisions is in the classroom or on exercise and not over the patient, if the issue can be at all anticipated. I think also acceptance of the risk you are facing is important and it shapes your behaviours. When I was flying on the MERT helicopter, the medical emergency response team helicopter in Afghanistan to rescue the injured at the point of wounding, then my focus was only on the next 24 hours or probably actually just on the next mission. And I didn't care that I'd had fries for lunch and fries for my evening meal. And it may not be great for your cholesterol, but it sure was good for the soul at the time. But I think my greatest coping mechanism has been to write it down. And I've always kept a war diary. I've written a lot of articles. I've written a lot of books. But what I've also done is I've written a lot of poetry. And I now have a whole anthology of contemporary war poetry over 25 years that I'm increasingly exposing in live performance, exhibitions, and publication. Can you give us a, just a quick example of maybe one of your favorite? So this poem is about the funeral cortege that would come from the military airbase and drive very slowly through a nearby village where the crowds would have assembled on its way to the coroner in Oxford, and it's called the Black Snake. Long and black, with high-gloss back, is our most deadly snake. Through glass belly the mourners see, Britain on the caskets draped. The legion's flags with respect sag, dipping as the snake glides by. A petal shower forms a thin cover as families in silence cry. This wooden meal's far from unreal, a consequence of modern war, where choice, not need, impels we feed this virtuous cycle to endure. That's fantastic. Jeez, sir, thank you for sharing that. That was, that was amazing. Thank you. Have you published your poems? Do you have those available? So there are, a small number have been published. There is a book coming. So there's, there's, there's sort of one in press, but I, I haven't until fairly recently felt comfortable in sort of exposing these things. These have been really quite personal and sort of private. You said it was a coping mechanism. It's a way of reflecting on something that's, that's happened. But I, I had a very good airing last November when my, I think it was 19 of my poems were read out at an event that was laid on for a military charity. And we had BBC news readers, senior officers, politicians, actors read them out. And one of them that I'd written as a hymn was sung a cappella by an opera singer. I can tell you there wasn't a dry eye in the house. So there, there will come the time when they're, they're available and I'll happily let you know that, that they're out there. One other thing that I wanted to ask you about developing resilience, and, and sometimes it's harder, sometimes it's easier for experienced clinicians to develop that. But when you're bringing 18 and 19-year-olds on the battlefield to work in your hospitals and medical treatment facilities, how can you prepare them to deal with some of the horrific things that they're going to see in their friends. I mean, you mentioned medics are going to see medics that are injured, their, their fellow man. How do you prepare them? 
Yeah, I, I think you're touching on a number of issues here. And first, I would say that treating people in the military setting is very different to treating people in the civilian setting. If as an emergency physician, I'm told that there's an injured patient coming into the, the resource room, I'm not going to know that individual. I'm detached from that individual. I will do my very professional best. But if I'm in a field hospital and an injured soldier comes in wearing the same uniform and we are told before that individual arrives what their name is, what their rank is, probably by a member of their unit who's come to the hospital to tell us that, it all feels somewhat different. It feels more highly charged. It feels like you are treating a member of your extended family. So I think it is different treating our service personnel than it is treating a civilian population from which you are at least partially dislocated. How do we prepare them? Well, increasingly, we have programs that we use from the start of basic training in our military. We actually introduced this around 2014, 2015, which uses sports psychology and mindfulness and other kind of combination of techniques. And we introduced it to help people get through infantry training because infantry training was particularly arduous and we were losing a lot of people through that basic training. But when we realized that it actually helped the, the infantry get through their basic training, we started to apply it more widely. In fact, we've rolled it out across the whole of the army to use it as a baseline to build coping mechanisms for stressful situations, which are then re-emphasized at 85 touch points throughout a soldier's professional career. We keep re-emphasizing these, these key points and building on them. I think also once you get to a pre-deployment setting where we're trying to prepare people for working within a field hospital where you may be seeing critical trauma that you, are, you may not be particularly conditioned to, then we've had something called HOSPEX, where we have two bursts of intense training uh, in a field hospital that is set up in the UK in exactly the same configuration that you will meet when you go out overseas. And we pressure test it. We force casualties, which includes actors who've lost limbs and have been made up to look like casualties from a, from a war movie. So they're very realistic casualties that we put through. And while it's not the same as treating a real casualty, it is quite close to the injuries that they will be exposed to in somebody who is making a lot of noise and who appears to be in a lot of distress. So I think our ability to prepare people has improved over time, but there's still nothing that fully prepares you for the, the horrors that you actually meet when you're in that combat setting. Sir, you've seen firsthand how allied military medical units partner to provide excellent care on the battlefield. What is one area where cooperation could be improved or, or made even better beyond what we're doing today? So what I'd say is that these are exactly the discussions that fix the Surgeon Generals when we meet in closed session within the COMEDS plenary meeting. And COMEDS is the Committee of Chiefs in Military Medical Services in NATO, and I'm the current chair. So one topic that consumes a good deal of discussion is the interoperability of blood and blood products for casualties that might be evacuated through a multinational chain. And there's a great number of legislative barriers and hurdles to overcome. And we are working to identify pragmatic solutions and alternatives to establishing a whole series of bilateral memoranda of understanding. 
Uh, I think what I'd also say is that while in peace, we are hugely constrained by bureaucracy. My intuition is that in war, pragmatism will prevail and a lot of these barriers will melt away. Our War Docs audience is an international audience. However, it's predominantly American. What do you think that an American audience would be surprised to know about? Or what do you think there's something that they should know about military medicine in the UK that they don't know? So the UK no longer has any independent military hospitals. We closed them from 1995. And in their place, we've got large clusters of uniformed staff working in civilian hospitals, which have a military command and control node embedded within them. And I think the decision was almost certainly financially driven, but there have been realizable benefits that were not fully understood at the time. And our staff who are working in major trauma centers on the civilian side, they get much more experience than they would have in a one of our prior smaller military hospitals. And our patients, particularly those who are evacuated back from overseas operations, they're afforded every specialty within a single civilian hospital. And I, I do miss working in a military-run hospital with its very specific ethos and family atmosphere, but there's no financial or clinical logic for us to return to that model. You may have alluded to it, but what is something that military medicine in the U.S. could and should learn from the U.K. and vice versa? So I think we're learning from each other all the time. I have a routine weekly video call with the Joint Staff Surgeon in the Pentagon, and we act as a mutual sounding board on a whole range of issues from the latest public health challenges, be it COVID or monkeypox, or to operational issues. And we also have a bilateral task force that collaborates on a raft of research priorities, which includes infectious diseases, combat casualty care, CBRN, a whole range of issues. I think the key is that we continue to exploit each other's strengths for mutual benefit, because if we do that, we will avoid nugatory effort on one side of the Atlantic or the other, and we will avoid having capability development gaps. As a UK Surgeon General, and fires going on all over the globe right now. What is something that keeps you up at night? So I think it's our ability to deal with casualties at scale should the conflict escalate within Europe, which includes our mindset for MassCal and our acceptance that we cannot give exquisite care to all, as is possible in low-intensity conflict, but we may have to accept poorer outcomes than we have accepted on recent operations. And how do we move those casualties across nations to get them back to, the, to their home nation? And this is all about patient flow management. It's something that exercises a lot within the, the NATO community. And it's something that the medical leaders within NATO have come together to, again, pressure test within our COMEDS setting to ensure that we are good enough for day one, should we have to do this. How do you prepare the civilian population that is now used to every soldier, sailor, marine that gets deployed? There's a very high likelihood that they're going to get the best care possible and likely return. If that can't happen in the battlefield of the future, how do you prepare the civilian population for that? So I think that's quite difficult in peace, because I don't think people would necessarily understand 
the greater risk acceptance that we have in, in a wall footing. But we know it will happen if we transition towards war. Just look at what happened in COVID. Look at how the public, if not accepted, started to recognize that there would be a very high number of deaths for COVID and that outcomes would not be as good as in the, in the pre-COVID era. So I think when we get to wars of national survival versus wars of choice, then the public appetite will undergo a paradigm shift. But you touch upon another really key issue, which is civil-military collaboration within the wartime setting. And we have a new concept within NATO called the NATO Medical Support Capstone Concept, and it was signed off by the Military Committee in November 2022, that at its heart is enhanced civil-military cooperation. Because as we saw in COVID, the civilian sector became very reliant on the military to reinforce them. But in war, the military will be reliant on the civilian sector to give them that additional capacity. Because we may not have all of the strategic airlift to move all of the casualties that we want by military means. We may have to commandeer civilian aircraft to do that. We may put military staff on civilian aircraft but we may have to use the military fleet. We may have to convert military shipping uh, into shipping that can carry casualties. And indeed, we may have to use civilian trains and convert them into a means to mass casualty transport, particularly uh, across the European nation. And certainly, we're going to have to use civilian hospitals because our capacity will run out within a nation that has military hospitals and in the UK, where we have no military hospitals, we'll be reliant on the civilian system from day one uh, to take our military casualties for definitive care. Is the, the UK military medicine team instructing civilians on how to take care of mass cal type situations, terrorist bombings, things that can happen? So absolutely, yes. In 2004, I wrote the first kind of or set of comprehensive operational clinical guidelines, we call them clinical guidelines for operations, and it included trauma, medicine, environmental, and toxicology, the, the CBR issues, all within a set of guidelines, which all followed from a common stem. So you didn't have to sort of change your mental system to be able to deal with trauma or medical or CBRN or environmental, because often you have to deal with the same, with multiple issues across a single patient. So clinical guidelines for operations for the military since 2004. Now the civilians took a shine to these. And in 2017, we produced a civilian version, which are the National Health Service major incident and, and mass casualty guidelines which are very much about how to deal with blast, gunshot, penetrating trauma, following the military principles and distributed to every single civilian hospital within the country. So we've used the military experience at the request of our National Health Service to develop their guidelines that give that common understanding to all civilian hospitals. Has that worked at all? Uh, well, yes, they're, they're all out there. So if they get blast and gunshot casualties, they've got the guidelines. They know how to how to deal with them. Of course, there is still a an experiential learning element, but they are not blind 
to the specific protocols to follow and, and the principles of war surgery to follow if dealing with blast and gunshot injuries. I guess I was just thinking of something that I'd read about a uh, Ariana Grande concert that had a bomb that went off and they used some of those guidelines to, to help with the, the civilian response to that. So those guidelines were not published at the time of the Manchester Arena bombing, because which was early 2017. And they, the guidelines came out later in the year. But what did happen in the hospitals in Manchester is that they called forward military expertise from our combined civil military hospital in Birmingham. So we weren't there for the first few hours. The local hospitals had to deal with that. But the senior experienced military clinical staff then visited hospitals on the wards, on the intensive care units, and advised about their continued management. What are some of your proudest accomplishments in your career? And moving forward, what are your goals for the future? Uh, I think what I would say is that I'm proud to record a number of firsts in my career. The first to be trained in emergency medicine in the Army. The first defense consultant advisor in emergency medicine. The first military clinical director at our Royal Centre for Defence Medicine, which is our role for hospital in Birmingham, receiving all of the injured and sick from overseas. The first defence professor in emergency medicine, and now the first Surgeon General from an emergency medicine background, and the first Brit to be elected as chair of the Committee of Medical Chiefs in NATO. But I'd also say that seeing the results of the revolution in combat casualty care that I've led within our UK military system is a source of enormous satisfaction. And seeing the concepts and courses I've created endure and spread internationally is a legacy that I think will have saved many lives over the years and I hope will continue to do so. And you know the concepts you've invented are truly accepted when they're taught back to you, particularly by the junior soldiers on your pre-deployment training. So I'm now in the last 18 months of my military career. I'm extended in service to complete three years as Surgeon General and three years as the chair of the NATO committee. And those roles are my focus. And what I want to do is to leave each appointment having advanced them both. So I think my future goals at this point are only partially formed. I'm a trustee of three charities and I will continue into the foreseeable future to do that. And I will remain Master General of the Army Medical Services on my retirement. But otherwise, I would say that there's uncertainty. But I hope you might realize uh, that I'm comfortable with that, because with uncertainty comes opportunity. We've been speaking with the UK Surgeon General, Major General Tim Hodgetts on Wardock's podcast. Sir, thanks for sharing your experiences and insights with us. And, and thank you for your service. Thank you very much for the chance to talk. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team War Docs on WarDocsPodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.